I am running out the door to go to the North Carolina mountains with my beloved wife for a week. We, we celebrate next week, 40 years, four zero, 40 years together. Um, which is no small thing. The woman is a saint. What can I say? So last week we were in with some of our oldest friends in Nashville, and I saw one of our mutual friends, Dr. Margaret Brennan, and I said, we got to talk. We got to talk. Dr. Margaret Brennan was a cardiologist, and um, she uh, developed, I guess, 13 years ago, breast cancer, and that got taken care of. And then there was this weird reaction to it. And then they discovered that the breast cancer has metastasized. And so now the doctor has become the patient. And she is what you would hope for in a doctor. Um, and that is that she cares. She looks you in the eye. She treats you as a human being. She has compassion and and is just a wonderful human being. And I think that karma is coming around because you will hear her say she has a lot of great, great specialists. I mean, ultra specialists, because the type of reaction she has had, which she goes into great detail about, she's like one in uh, five in a million. She said five in a million. So not very many of these. And she's now up working to help advocate for patients and their families who really need help in this profoundly broken system. And we talk a lot about that, too. So we don't talk about that much about her growing up as an Irish Catholic. But we you, you get to hear about that, about her growing up in Queens. And now she lives in Baltimore, very near Johns Hopkins. Um, so it's a real personal when the doctor becomes the patient kind of conversation. And most of us in America have these kinds of issues, you know, with somebody in the family who has cancer, has had cancer. Um, we know people, uh, you know, our spouses, et cetera. And so it's, it's very poignant because she knows she only has so many more summers so many more autumns, you know, it's a fixed number as though, you know, you can count them on one hand. And, and it's really a poignant conversation, uh, Dr. Margaret Brennan. If somebody has something wrong with them that I don't understand, I'm constantly hunting and pecking to find out more. And I don't do that with myself. This is In Her Words a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In her words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to In Her Words, my podcast. I'm Stuart Watson, um, you know, recovering journalist, uh, being a pest and talking to... Uh, my friends, and probably talking a little bit too much, but working on learning to listen to women and, you know, picking on my friends. And Dr. Margaret Brennan is my friend. And you'll hear an awful lot about how medicine gets really, really personal. And, you know, impersonal medicine is not very good medicine. You know, medicine from a bot, medicine from Google, uh, not very good medicine. It's in, in, it is a human art um, when a, one human being looks at another and, and the first thing is compassion. And uh, she says the first three things she has to wrestle with are all anxiety, 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 and breast cancer comes right after that. Dr. Margaret Brennan on when the doctor becomes the patient. Where were you born? Queens. Yay. I was born in Kew Gardens Hospital, which no longer exists in Queens. I'm number one of two. I am two years older than my brother. And he is where? Is he still with us? He Yes, he is in Hoboken. Um, they've lived there for 40 years. Why? Yeah. 
<laughs> he, I mean, he's hard to encapsulate, but he was a naval architect, meaning he built ships. Wow. And we don't do that in America anymore. So the company he worked for, J.J. <clears throat> McMullen, sent him all over the world. And he met my sister-in-law, his secretary in Korea. Wow. And the two of them didn't want to, well, Joseph didn't, my brother, <clears throat> sorry, didn't want to be an expatriate forever. So he came back, went to UCLA Business School, and then became the mogul of Wall Street. And they moved to Hoboken to be across the river from the World Trade Center. Wow. So where was he on 9-11? Well, he was, he was in the World Trade Center when they bombed the basement like... I forget what that was. 93. And walked down 110 flights of stairs. And then he worked for a Japanese bank, Sumitomo. And unlike almost everybody else, they said, we're not going back in that building. And they moved to Midtown. So he oh, was in word. Midtown when the, on 9-11. But all his friends, that, that big, huge company, Cantor Fitzgerald, that was mm -hmm. all his friends, gone he he really well has not really been the same since then just a lingering grief but anyway it was fabulous that he wasn't in that building that day um so do you have niece nephews yes my beloved nephews and niece and because i haven't had kids they're sort of like my kids and we went on so many adventures and they have in recent years it has been come back to fill me with joy so many times the boys live in hoboken it's like an old italian family except they're korean american the boys <laughs> live within 10 blocks of the homestead john is the two of 18 months younger just had his first baby so he said to me, you've always been a great aunt, but now you're a great aunt. <laughs> I'm a great aunt. Um, he's making dad jokes already. <laughs> he's a dad. He's making dad that jokes. one I loved. <laughs> and, you know, he's so different than me. And one day he turned to me and said, I love sales. Like, Who are you? But he's just wonderful. And then Betsy, who's eight years younger, is a farmer in the Berkshires and married to a farmer. And she is so different than the rest of them. And she's so glad to not be in Hoboken. But they all just love it. So Brennan, I would think that's Irish, right? It is. It is. But you know, um, Hoboken is the land of Frank Sinatra. When you drive in, it says home of Frank Sinatra and baseball. <laughs> so historically, it was a very Italian community. It's not anymore. Now it's all, now it's Manhattan spilled over all those young and, people and you said and korean my sister was uh, korean yeah ah okay so did he meet her she was yeah, his, she secretary. Was his secretary now yeah. and so she's naturalized yeah well i don't wow. know but i don't know if she's an american citizen she i shouldn't say this in public but she's a lovely person but she doesn't think we do anything in America as well as they do it in Korea. You know, like she had a thyroid nodule. She flew home to have them take it out. It goes uh, on and on. She'll only go to Korean doctors. She'll only go to Korean grocery stores. She'll only go to Korean fill in the blank. Well, I don't know. I mean, some things they probably do. Yes. Better. And probably it's most things. <laughs> you know, the funny thing about America, and since you're a doctor, this is a great <laughs> way to ask this is uh, you have some of the best medicine in the world here and just some of the worst. People who are treating themselves with Dr. Google, who, who question their doctor <laughs> to great lengths, who, you know, read the internet to, you know, go and tell their doctors. <laughs> you must be tremendously frustrated. Just how long they are. Well, now I'm frustrated on the other end, too. My cousin... And, oh my God, my cousin in Durham. She, um, she's Durham, married. To, um, North, North Carolina. Carolina Durham, North uh, Carolina. She's married to a wonderful guy who got leukemia. He's seventy. And the bottom. And Pat has been my cousin. Has just been a pill her whole life with that kind of stuff. 
He has now been aggressively treated, bone marrow transplant. My cousin is still going to Facebook and bringing the stuff into the Duke oncologist to point out why his chemo choices might not be quite right. And in one of the greatest failings of my adult life, I haven't made a dent in that. And her mm. husband knows how to insulate himself. But that's a really sinister force when you're 70 and you're being treated for leukemia. <laughs> and someone's doing that constantly. Well, this is the downside of not trusting anything. Right, right. Is that all of a sudden when Facebook becomes more important than that In the medical degree that you spent a decade getting. Yeah, I know. Yeah. That's been very... And it's, you know, a lot of where I've put my energy since I haven't worked, which has been five years now, hard to believe, um, is in patient... I don't know what noun to use. I'm the patient co-chair of the Cancer Center Patient Family Advisory Council. And I've gotten away with murder because I have a Hopkins email. So I've been able to email all these people and say, will you come talk? Will you do this? And they think I'm a, they think I'm a doctor there. <laughs> You're a doctor. Well, I and was. You're... And I have a Hopkins email. <laughs> well, I mean, are you still licensed? Well, yes. But that's just because I pay $200 every other year. Do you have a medical degree? And are you I still do. licensed? I do, I do, I do. But at Hopkins. Congratulations, Margaret. You're a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're not pretending to be one. Right. But if they knew I was asking in my role as patient, because there's all this lip service. Oh, the patient voice. Oh, blah, 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 blah. But basically, everybody's too busy. But anyway. So in busy my, for the patients, but when you become the big deal that you are, like when you have MD after your name, yeah, does that help you as a patient? It's funny because my cousin is constantly saying that. We went yesterday for this consultation, and I was treated like royalty, and that's the first time that's happened in this five-year saga. And that's not true with my oncologist, but it's because he treats everybody like that. So no, it's it's funny. It's funny. And, you know, in Epic, it says Brennan Margaret MMD. And when I go to my little community hospital, Mercy, picked for its name, um, or I've had most of my surgeries, they always get it right. And at Hopkins, they never do. You know, they call, <laughs> they call me Marguerite Greener. So it's... it's <laughs> that sounds more exotic. <laughs> on the last day of all that god awful radiation they came out to the waiting room Marguerite. <laughs> now i find it hilarious and now tom does too i had to have recently have these biopsies we went one monday to this place and she came out and said "Bermanin." <laughs> and i blew up i was furious with her <laughs> We go back the next Monday to the same place, the same lady, Bernini. <laughs> Tom and I, I couldn't stand up. You're French, we you're Italian. You're we laughing so hard. And I said to her, and this is the story, and this is why patient family advisory councils help. I said to her, okay, I was here last Monday and I blew when you goofed up my name. And she said, oh, I remember <laughs> <laughs> said, now I know you. So this week we're friends. What is so hard about Brennan? And well, said, let me ask you a really no, good there, question. No, there's an answer. There's an answer. Yes. Here at Green Spring Station, our printer cuts the top off most oh. of the letter. So I was able to say to the person I know takes care of the printers, could you fix that? So that's, you know this principle, that it's, People usually don't fail us. It's usually the system. So I we get mad at the person in front of us. And the week before I blew at Shania. <laughs> yes. Yes. So That's I don't want to lose this question, though. Go, this, go. This will help. Um, if you were a patient and maybe you have been ignored, maybe you haven't. Maybe you haven't been listened to. Um, and you blow up, does it help? Like a strategic 
um, not not staying on eleven all the time, not screaming at everyone, but a strategic blow up. Does that does that help you? I will rephrase, redirect that question and say what my oncologist has taught me is in the moment, every moment, to ask yourself what matters most. What do I need to have happen right now? And completely blowing up, never advance, never moves you forward. And if you can say, what do I need to have happen right now? All right, got it. I got to get an appointment. And the person on the phone is just being impossible. A lot of it's about surrender. So that's the other end of the spectrum. Don't get mad at all. Go with it. It's a main, it's annoying, but you need to get an appointment. Or with all these phone banks now, almost always, and a nurse taught me this, almost always, if you just hang up and call back, you'll get somebody who knows more and who Mm. is a reasonable person. Whereas before I used to go berserk with the first person, exhaust myself, exhaust them, maybe get an appointment, maybe not. You have to say, what do I need to have happen? And and along the lines of what you asked, tailor your strategy in the moment to get what you need. Hmm. Because I am very lucky with my oncologist, my surgeon at Mercy, but most of us don't have those people anymore. They call to check on you and see how you're doing, to see what you need. Most of us are engaged with a horde of strangers who are overworked. Are you a good patient? Yeah, I'm a very good patient. I mean, my my course has been so complicated. And I for like the last year, I found this wonderful new internist, which is a miracle. My old internist who I retired (laughs) but she always says to me you're so organized it's really helpful (laughs) so i am really organized it is really helpful and 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 my oncologist has taught me i mean i used to go in there because this has been going on 13 years with the two of us and i used to go in there what does that mean just all these different problems my toe hurts my ear hurts oh you were all over the map all over the map, and he'd be he and he is double boarded in oncology and psychiatry, which is a fabulous, <laughs> which is a fabulous thing. <laughs> Helpful. The first meeting I met with him, I, I said, "Did you do that on purpose?" <laughs> and he said, "No, Margaret. A bunch of psychiatry elves came and died." <laughs> And ever since then, we've been like that. <laughs> but he's taught me. I go, and now, now we do it great. I go in there like a tangled ball of yarn, and he just like he leans forward and he'll say, "What matters most today?" And then I'll say, "You know, well, it's the arrow through my head, or whatever." <laughs> and he takes it out. <laughs> you know, Tom, my Tom's first wife died when she was in her late thirties with breast cancer. And this oncologist was her oncologist. So when that biopsy came back on that Friday afternoon for me in 2010, Tom asked him to see me. So it's just been, it's just been such good luck. And he's just, and he's in his seventies and he semi-retired in December, but he kept me. Thank you, God. So we'll see. Well, did Tom freak out? Tom's an amazing guy who freaks out about almost nothing. He's just a, he's, you know, he's had a lot of heartache in his life, but he just keeps going. I mean, you know, he gets up every morning and at 6 a.m. and walks the dog that his son donated to him 10 years ago. (laughs) What kind of dog? Just, he looks like a, he looks like a whiskey barrel with legs. (laughs) 
<laughs> but he's very sweet. But he's so old. Nobody can believe he's still going, but he is. But Do Tom, you overfeed this dog? Tom does. I mean, treats, treats, treats. Because Remus won't do anything that he's supposed Remus. to do. Remus. without treats. But yeah, Tom's an amazing guy. And like yesterday, I had to go to this consultation, and I just didn't want to go. You know, and I was kidding around in the parking lot. Like, I don't want to go in. I don't want to go in. But if Tom hadn't been there, I wouldn't go in. <laughs> but he's just like, me, me, me. So this is a consultation for you. Yeah. Because it's it's really complicated. I mean, I had simple breast cancer in 2010. If surgery, take a pill, and then. But what happened seven years later is, and we didn't catch on for a couple of years. There's this five in a million thing which I have, where cancer triggers an autoimmune disease, an antibody with a specific name, and my specific antibody attacks your muscles, joints, and lungs. So in 2017, for two years, we struggled with the muscle joint attack. And then I was finally at the end of my rope with the treatment. And I just called up the main clinic. <laughs> I said, could I come there? And we said, we have a cancellation on New Year's Eve. So I went. And she said that beautiful young rheumatologist said, well, you know, you have that little lymph node under your arm. Don't we think we should biopsy that? Because that could be causing all this. So she was right. Well, thank God you asked for that appointment. I mean, it's not that I, I tell this to my cousin all the time. It's not that second opinions are smarter, better, more savvy, but they look at you with open, fresh eyes. Ah, and it can't be overestimated, the power of that. So I came back, radiation surgery, took it all. And the it went away. The autoimmune thing went away. And then in April of this year, I couldn't breathe. Just harder and harder to breathe. And I bamboozled my internist. <laughs> I said, well, I'm out of shape. Just get away from me. Then I went to my oncologist said the same thing. He said, well, that may be true, but we're getting a CT scan. And my lungs were on fire, inflamed. And it's the antibody now attacking my lungs. And long story short, so you get scanned at the wazoo. I had lymph nodes everywhere. And I had to have them all biopsied, my lungs, my arms. My... But they were all, they weren't cancer. But we found one little chunk of breast cancer in my liver. Just one. Nowhere else. And wait, how can you have breast cancer in your liver? It's a metastasis. Oh. But it's the only one. And all of everything else is from this autoimmune lung disease. Do you see how confusing this has been? But not for my oncologist. He just is like, he's like Tom. He just keeps going. So anyway, long story short. I finally get my lungs sorted out where everybody says the antibodies attacking your lungs. At Hopkins, of course, there's an antisympathase syndrome pulmonologist. <laughs> what? <laughs> Who I go to. Like, where are the other four people in a million that have this? <laughs> and she sees me, we do the test. Yeah, that's what it is. It's and she puts me on really high dose steroids, which I'm still on, which is why I'm a little. And, and you, you, you can you can use those steroids for a fixed period of time, right? Well, but you can't you can't use them? There's right. there's a cost. There's a there's, there's a, a definite cost. cost. And I have osteoporosis, so already from all the breast cancer treatment and my little tiny height and my mother. So yes, the prednisone in me makes me so scared. But when you can't, I couldn't breathe. So it's like, bring it on, baby. And I'm so much better after two weeks of that. I can breathe better, much better. So there are other stuff they can use and she will use as we wean it down if I go the other way. But what we're thinking, and I, I'm not sure if I got my oncologist in on this lunatic fringe, 
But when they when the surgeon took out that lymph node in 2019, my muscles got better. So I have this one little piece of breast cancer in my liver. And I got him to believe that if we take that out, my lungs will get better. <laughs> is that true or is that well, just Well, something? we'll see. We'll see. And I said to him the last time I was there, I said, if this works, can I write a paper about it and you'll sign it? And he said, yes. Are you serious about that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because there's nothing about people like me written down. I mean, we're these weird outliers. So yesterday we had to go to the interventional radiologist at Hopkins. And long story short, in a couple of weeks, he's going to microwave it. You go into the CT scanner, they stick little tubes in there. And... He microwaves it, and there's a ninety percent. There's a ninety percent chance it'll go away for now, and we'll see. I mean, I offered to just get in a microwave, <laughs> but we'll see. So you know, just keep your fingers crossed. If getting rid of that little provocateur could shut down this autoimmune thing for another couple of years, that would be fab. But don't you have to? take that out anyway do i mean wouldn't you no once breast and that's that's why i can't believe these people are all going along with this was once breast cancer is out of your chest wherever it is it's not curable the sheer level of all that you know not only about the system but about all these different ailments and their connections um does that help you or does it just keep you up at three in the morning doing three-dimensional chess about what this might be. Does it help you to know more? I have to say, I have surprised myself. I have surprised myself. My whole life, if somebody has something wrong with them that I don't understand, I'm constantly hunting and pecking to find out more. And I don't do that with myself. And it's so fun. This is so, is it painful, embarrassing? It, it was two years that I was treated for the muscle thing. I developed these headaches that were unfrickin' believable. And I and everybody that got that treatment gets a headache. It's true. But these headaches were the worst headache of your life every time you got it. And I kept saying to my team, that is a word that will cause me to blow. My team. The team means you have no one. (laughs) Somebody needs to be. The captain. The the captain. And I kept saying, "Uh and it's like, drink more water. Drink more water. Drink more. So at the end of those two years, I thought, I just can't do this anymore. And when I went to the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Alicia Hinsey said to me, well, you know, three, one to three percent of people that take that medicine get aseptic meningitis. So non-infectious meningitis. It irritates the line, the covering on their brain. I never looked that up. Why did I never look that up? I never looked that up. So that's my most painful example of no, I haven't been good at healing myself. And that's the most vivid display. And, you know, my oncologist is not a rheumatologist. He doesn't give that medicine. But that's how much I depend on him to be looking up stuff for me. And I stopped. But to be fair, I mean, it's, it's not your job. Yeah, I know. You're the patient. I know. It's not your job to be doing this I when know. you have yes, a, just but, like a head splitting headache. And the fog, the fog. I look at stuff I signed those last six months. I had just, I mean, and that's really why I thought I'll never go back to work. And I gave up after those 18 months. Because my brain was just in a fog. And I, 
I don't ever say I don't ever say that to blame anybody else. But of course, I mean, in November, I refused to take it again. And then I saw her in December. But I think that kind of thing happens to a lot of people. And that makes my heart sad. And we're no longer at the healthcare policy work model where everyone has someone looking out for them to say, you know, there could be aseptic meningitis from that stuff. So I don't know the answer to that, Stuart. I mean, just imagine that you're not a doctor, you're on Medicaid, and you're not calling up the Mayo Clinic. No, I know. We're showing up. You suffer and die. I know, I know, I know. And I'll tell you one uplifting thing the other night or meeting on Thursday. Um, it's a long story because, you know, the, the neighborhood around Hopkins is just terrible with respect to health care. There's no trust and people have no insurance and it's terrible. And it's right next to this. And I've gone down several, there's this thing called a day at the market and the Northeast market is there. And every other Wednesday, different groups from Hopkins go. And I've gone a couple times now. And it's such, it's so inefficient, but it works. Like during heart month, we had this booth and <laughs> wheel of fortune. And, and, you know, of the, the 40 people that stopped to get free stuff, probably five of them stopped, made eye contact, wanted information. My brother just dropped dead. Should I worry about that? So trust is not impossible to build, but there's so little trust. But then the other night, this was so uplifting. All of Hopkins Community Health is moving to the community health worker model. So somebody who grew up near you, who looks like you, is your contact into the system. And this wonderful young woman came to present the study she's doing. And it's would community health workers improve the use of palliative care in the community because it's zip. And this woman who was the community health worker has done it for 10 years. What a woman. But she said, you know, it's better. I can just tell you it's better. I go into people's houses and I say, Hopkins cares enough about you to pay me to come here. But it's so long and difficult and but see how that's a completely new model it's not some uptight white person equity it's somebody that grew up down the block who knows we've sort of been screwed here but like who should we trust to help us that i i found that a really wonderful positive ray of light because there's so much darkness that the people you've got to cling to those you've got to you've got to cling to those you've got to you know there's a tendency i think to you know kind of shit on that you know say oh but it's so little and it yes it is you know it's 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 it won't solve everything and blah 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 i'm like hey but it solved that one so can we build i mean it is a little ember or for Mr. Ember to blow or for on. Jane Doe, it helped Jane Doe. Yeah. And oh, sorry. Can't and, can't save the world, but helped her. Right. So there are, and you know, Tom. What Tom says, because Tom has such equanimity, he just says we're in the. This is like with the tectonic plates right now. We're just in this very metastable revolutionary world of medicine. And, I don't know, meta-stable, what is that? It just means that the system is really broken. And there are, as my mother used to say, you could talk yourself blue in the face with all the gaps and lacks and needless 
frustration at a time when you are needing comfort, not frustration. But Tom just thinks it's going to collapse and become something new. And I don't know what simpler, much simpler. I don't know what that is. And I remember my beloved mentor, who's the whole reason I came to Baltimore in the first place. He used to say that he used to say, and that was in the nineties. He used to say, there's going to be a ton of pain and then there'll be a universal health system. Mm -hmm. It'll give birth to that. One thing is, and this is my own little, thing is the completely abstract you know your your psychiatrist slash oncologist has it right because those are not two different things um the the whole notion that mental health is some kind of like not real health (laughs) it's like um the way you were treated by quote unquote the system has a profound impact on yeah. your uh, ability to heal, on compliance, on you know trust. Um, that mental health is just health, and there is no health without mental health. No, and you, you, know? I, you just you just hit it right on the head, which has been my enlightenment as a patient. Which John Fedding gets that with me. He knows that anxiety is one, two, and three and breast cancer is four. And that's how he treats me. And that's the reason this has been gone on. But wait, how, how, how does he help with the anxiety? You know, for a really, if you don't get that, other, you know, if you lay in bed with the covers over your head, not taking your medicine. So you just hit that nail on the head. I never realized what a profound effect your mood what a profound bad effect your mood can have on your adherence. So I still go back to what do you do to address the anxiety? Do you eat fistfuls of Xanax? Do you take this whiskey barrel of a dog out for a walk? Do you pet <laughs> the dog? Do you? What do you do that helps you? I go outside and work in the dirt. The garden has been, I call it my victory garden. Every time I go, I bring him something. John, my oncologist, I work in the dirt. I walk around. I read books that completely distract me. And I submerge myself in these other activities, intellectual activities, which now are patient oriented. But this coming week, there's a national oncology PFAC meeting at Sloan Kettering. And I'm on a panel. It's the first national meeting of my life. And it's called, my little part of the panel is called leveraging your seat at the table. Because we have done these few successful things where you can get what patients need through the large institution to say, okay, we'll help you with that. It's been, but working on that has just been wonderful. It's the representatives from the 28 National Cancer Institutes in America. And Sloan Kettering is rolling in dough. So this conference is free. On Wednesday night, they're renting out a restaurant (laughs) on the Upper East Side for the dinner. Our PFAC has a budget of like $172. <laughs> but I'm just euphoric about it. But it's like, although my slides aren't ready, but I was going to do that in Nashville. That didn't happen. Well, um, I, I have to ask you um, like uncomfortable questions. Feel free. Do you go to mass? Yes. Are you mad at God? No. Were you ever mad at God? Briefly in the 90s. How come? What was that? I can't even remember. Your tiff with God. (laughs) (laughs) I was a little miffed. (laughs) I was vexed. 
I was I perturbed. Expect, I mean, my relationship with God is, you know, my mother, like Maggie's mother, like Maggie, they're just such remarkable women and their faith is a part of who they are. So the Catholic Church is ridiculous. I'll sign. And they were on, Irish. They I'll were sign Irish. on the line. Yes, wherever you want me to sign. They're ridiculous. But it's the church of my mother and I just can't make myself leave. And my relationship with God is that I have a cousin that I no longer talk to. There was no fracas. But she she's an uber Catholic who has the marionette idea of God, that if you pray really hard, you can pray away Steve's leukemia. And that is so profoundly offensive to me. You know, all those years in practice, like this 23-year-old died because somebody didn't pray. But anyway, so that's not my idea of God. I could see where that God could let you down and you could have a big tiff with him. Agnostics and fundamentalists make the same mistake in that they take the Bible literally. And the Bible is just, and my college roommate is an avid reader, avid fan of literature. And Tom said to her, you know, the Bible is just a collection of stories trying to help us understand things that are hard to understand and just stories. Jesus kept, stayed grounded in peace, equanimity, hope, love. And that just sort of has, makes me think it's possible. And we're all gonna, we're all gonna have some mayhem here. <laughs> but it's how you think it through. That's a very morphed Catholic view of God, I think. But yeah. it, it gives me such peace. It gives me such peace. And I'll tell you that I hate MRIs the most. And it's hard to stay in there. And I just keep my eyes closed. And that's what I feel the closest to God. Isn't that weird? I mean, it should be a lot like a lot of other places. But, you know, like I see God when I look at baby hydrangeas. I see God when I look at little babies. I mean, I, it, that's not God, but it's joy and I don't know. So that's my God story. Do you pray? I don't pray for stuff, but in the, you go to a Jesuit church, you know, Catholic church, but they're Jesuit priests. And in the St. Ignatian tradition, I am thankful and keep gratitude at the center. I don't think I've ever been so grateful for things as I am now. That's a big benefit of all this illness. So um, I have a really rude question. That's all right. Um, we're all dying, but like, are you dying? That's not rude. At Sloan Kettering, the title of the dinner, and this guy is such a cool dude. It's called Death Over Dinner. And he, he, has, he has started this movement, which now is at Sloan Kettering, Dana Farber, Stanford. Well, I'd want to check the food if that's don't they mean <laughs> don't they mean dying over dinner? Death over dinner. And Not they invite people from dinner. every sphere at Sloan Kettering just to like chat about death. But anyway, once you have metastatic breast cancer, you probably have like Deirdre, my college roommate, is on year eight. So I probably have, I don't know, anything could happen because I have this whack, wacky autoimmune thing too. But one, I don't know, three, five, eight years, two, I don't care. Which, you know, is sort of weird, but I'm, I've had this wonderful life and I'm just grateful for it. And I don't care. I don't care when I die. I've donated my body to the Maryland Anatomy Board so they can do what they want and then dust me over the Chesapeake Bay or wherever they do it. I I don't care. And I don't I do think, think it's that romantic. <laughs> and I do I do think there's heaven. I can't explain to you how it works. I do think I'll get to see my mother. I don't know. I, and my cat Griffin. <laughs> Oh, great. I don't know. I don't know. But, and I don't want to suffer. Of course not. But I don't mind dying. I don't mind dying. And, and this is terrible. And I can't believe I'm even going to say this, but, you know, I was really worried that my money wouldn't last. So it makes me happy. 
then it probably will. <laughs> Over a week, I couldn't move. I turned to stone. But you know, he said, I didn't know what to do. I remembered he was over there. I called him up five o'clock office basement, dark. And he figured it out. He saw me at six o'clock on a rainy, cold November night. And he said, he said, I think it's the medicine. But you know, you have breast cancer. Do we know that's not in your head? No, no one's asked that. It wasn't in my head. But just such a doctor and it's I think I want to name it for my parents but I'm think or I don't know or for him and an endowed professorship you know just means that some great person gets security a lot of times it's small things done with great kindness as yeah, Mother Teresa said it's, it's <laughs> small, small things great love is small things there is no great great acts of love that are only small acts done with great love and um we remember those people who in that moment they exerted that and i know that you've been a good doctor to so many people that by being a human being and this has given me insight because just to be perfectly honest you know, I've never thought I was that smart. I've always thought I worked twice as hard to be half as smart as most people. And I, to be honest, I could never understand the reaction I got from patients, the devotion, the appreciation. I really couldn't. Now I completely do because I realized I wanted how much I want to be treated like I treated them. It was tangentially related to the medical care. Well, that's karma. Yeah, maybe that is. John Fanning is my karma. If you and I got struck by lightning today, and the only thing that survived was this recording of your voice, what oh. is your legacy? Mm -hmm. What is my legacy? I mean, I don't know. I know that my love for my nephews and my niece will live on. I know that my love for Tom's daughter will live on. I guess it's the tiny bit of net positive I brought to the world. The little bit of positivity I brought to the world that wouldn't have been there without me. What's an example of like, one of those like small acts. What did that look like? It's funny because we, there was a young woman, and I've realized how many times I've done this kind of stuff without thinking about it. This woman joined our council mom, nurse anesthetist, dad, divorced dad, snooty Hopkins surgeon. The daughter, during COVID got Hodgkin's disease and had to be treated, every treatment alone. And she's 20. And those chemo drugs can wreck your fertility. And she didn't get a fertility consultation. They just gave her all the drugs. And I, and then got an empathetic, oncologist downtown, a lymphoma oncologist, to do an oncology grand rounds on what are the updates, who should you say, what about your eggs? And that mother was so grateful. She texted me a few weeks ago and she said, um, you know, she had her eggs harvested this morning. The chemo didn't make it make her irreversibly infertile, but we're both so grateful that you you helped going forward. You helped make it less likely that that happened to somebody else. That may be my greatest legacy right there. <laughs> but I've done lots of stuff like that for reasons I cannot explain to you. Just you know. 
forced to do it by some voice in my head. I don't altruistic. Know. Altruistic. I don't, know. I don't know. But that's, I'm grateful that that's how my brain works. I didn't teach myself that or nobody else taught me that. And I guess it was my mother watching her. I can't tell you. But that's how my brain works. And those are all my greatest rewards, that kind of stuff. Well, thank God. Yeah. Thank God for you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. And it was so good to see you. This boosted my spirits. Margaret Brennan, my life is so much richer for knowing you as a friend. And, you know, I just so admire you. I so, so admire you. Thank you for making time. We could talk some more. We could talk for hours and hours more. But thank you for sharing. In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who has supported little old me, manlistening.com, In Her Words, the podcast, voicelocket.com. Uh, my business, and really all these all these weird, wacky media endeavors, which are ongoing. Thanks so much. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much. <laughs>